Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and it's cold outside. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and it's warm inside, so I haven't gone outside for a couple days now because it's cold. I'm Brian Dawes, and yeah, it's, it's real cold outside, and it's a little bit cold inside. I'm Ashley Barrow, and it is less cold outside here, but I still had to walk several blocks to class, so it's cold enough. Didn't you say it was like 50 degrees near you? It was 20 this morning when I was walking. Oh, that's not good. Normal Georgia weather. (laughs) Yeah, that's not concerning at all. Georgia weather, like when one inch of snow brings you to your knees. Okay, but the snow last year was awesome. They also don't have salt and plows in Georgia. Yeah, they don't have the infrastructure at all. So there's no real news this week, unless you're into organized play, and then there was kind of some news, and then not a whole lot of other news. So we're going to talk today about listener questions. First question is from at BLTMTG on Twitter. Who would win in a bare-knuckle fist fight? The Gruel Boar God or Nicol Bolas? Why would you even ask? That's not a question at all. Clearly Nicol Bolas. We're assuming that they have fists, but have you ever seen a boar and you think you're going to fight it? Unless you're a dog, and I don't think Bolas is a dog. Let's pump the brakes and just realize that Nickel Bolas is going to have a BLT once this fight is over, because that bacon is going to be nice and delicious. What's he going to do? Is he going to swing with his little Tyrannosaurus arms? He's going to hit him with his tiny head? He's a dragon. He has a tail whack him on the face and he's got to get to the face first because there's tusks there we'll just pick him up and drop him we don't really know how big he is Mm. he could be significantly bigger than bolus not to mention probably a few times heavier because i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i know you've all been thinking it but bolus is a twink Mm. and we've all been thinking it honestly i mean he's real thin and he's got tiny arms so (laughs) has not been to the gym in millennia i mean if you look at some of his old arts he clearly used to lift he kind of let himself go (laughs) he doesn't have to because he's still swole besides we're we're looking for blts here and the only way we get that is if bolus wins you can't have a blt if bolus wins blt stands for bolus lettuce and tomato no that's bacon lettuce tomato I don't know what kind of BLTs you've been eating. Here's what we're having. We're having an egg sandwich. Oh, dragon eggs? His egg. Is that what that thing is for? This whole time it was just for lunch? It's it's not an egg, though. So, in a bare-knuckle fist fight... You know Bolus would cheat, though, right? He couldn't yeah. have just have a bare-knuckle fist fight. He'd have, like... And we're, we're assuming that the boar god has fists, right? And Ashley, you're forgetting Bolas's touch, what that actually does to people. Like, he, the boar god is just going to get frozen and, like, discombobulated every time Bolas touches him. You think he's going to land a blow? Yeah, I do. Hold on, Brian. You assume boars aren't born discombobulated, though. <laughs> and this is a gruel pig. They love discombobulation. That's what you think until you get to the mid-game and then they have no cards in their hand and then you're like, oh crap, I have, I'm running out of steam here. That's what Domri's minus is for. But Domri isn't here, it's just the pig. 
Well, then you just bolt to win, and they get so mad, right? You don't even have anything to say to that. You can't even come back from that. I'm over this. Y'all are in denial. We all know where this is, how this would actually happen, but we have some homers here, so it's, it's all right. I can't actually seriously discuss this because of my NDA, but this was fun. <laughs> oh, yes. Like, this is exactly what I'm thinking. We're talking about a kaiju battle here. Of epic proportions. Yeah. We're talking about a Mexican standoff. Boar God, Bolus. Amazing. You need three or more people for a Mexican standoff, though. Yeah, uh, Merit Lage. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right, we're moving on. This question has gone straight to the Nine Hells. Now you have my attention. <laughs> it's definitely Merit Lage. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so after that useful answer, we're going to move on to our <laughs> second question for the day, which is one that Lorelai and myself cannot answer. But the question is, there is a good chance that Milk, the set, will have multiple Planeswalkers on one card, right? I should note here real quick that this question is from before War of the Spark was revealed, so they're talking about War of the Spark. There are so many people involved, it would be hard to put all of them in otherwise, right? I mean, not everyone needs to have a Planeswalker card, but... And that's from at Fuchs on Twitter. So, I will put that to our resident able to speculators. So, I'm of the opinion that we're finally going to get a set where the majority of the Mythics are, in fact, Planeswalkers. They've been kind of getting us used to the fact that we have a bunch of Planeswalkers that aren't game-breaking Planeswalkers. They're situational, and they aren't the Ugin-level kind of Planeswalkers. Like, we might get one or two of those, but I think... We're going to get a bunch of Planeswalkers that are more niche, like Kaya and Dovin Bon. Maybe even some crappy ones, like Tybalt. Maybe, I doubt that, but we'll, we'll see. Like, I don't think we're going to get, like, brand new Planeswalker card for the cards that are already in standard. Like a Johnny, or... Well, we might... No, we're probably getting a new Liliana. Eternal General or something. And back to my original theory that... We're going to have all the Eternals back on the plane, and it's going to be a whole bunch of stuff like that, I, I think. I still don't know why you think that. They're all an Amonkhet. Look, you. Just because you can't <laughs> break your NDA doesn't mean you have to mislead everybody. Planner bridges are a thing, sir. Stop with that. I really... I don't know. I don't know. Um, This kind of thing is not what I really speculate about. I think it would be really cool, though. That's something that I've wanted since... I started playing really I've always thought that would be cool like combined this is their awesome team up thing so I mean I don't know but I'm with you in that that's something I've thought about and it's something that I want let Brian answer that because he actually knows how to play the game <laughs> but yeah I, I definitely think we're going to get our fair share of planeswalkers in this next set because heck we just got three in one set and I wouldn't be surprised if which is getting ready to throw down with a whole bunch of, especially with the play design team, like, I think they've got a good handle on what a Planeswalker needs to do to not be too broken. I think Dovin and Kaya are good examples of that. Heck, even little baby Sarkin, like, he has his uses, but he's, you know, he's not overpowered, but he's situationally good and spotty in other situations. So I think we're going to get Planeswalkers more on that power level instead of something like an overpowered Ugin or something like that. So 
I think that we could get a bunch of Planeswalkers in one set, including the Gatewatch and whatnot. That's my speculation as far as answering this question. All I'm going to say is that War of the Spark is pretty cool, and I can't wait for everyone to see it. Am I allowed to say War of the Spank? Yes. Anyway, I'm excited for War of the Spank. Let's move on to this week's magic story, Rage of the Unsung. This week's story begins with Eris, who is the runt of his Viachino litter. Eris is a tattoo artist, and we don't know this at first because we follow him stalking Amaka, which is this feral six-eyed tiger cat giant predator that lurks in the rubble belt it's very terrifying and so we see this moment where he's praying he's not noticed and then we learn the reason he's praying he's not noticed is because he wants to collect the maka's scat or its poop because maka poop is apparently a vital ingredient in gruel tattoo ink and those tattoos went from super cool to um that sounds like hepatitis, real quick. <laughs> hmm, yeah, they're definitely less badass now. Maybe more. Maybe more? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's really brave. In the same way that drinking anything at a college party is brave. Eris returns to his clan. He's a member of the, I think it was the Gore clan? Yes. He's a member of the Gore clan. His clutchmate, basically his brother, Jiri, is way cooler than him. We learn Eris was the runt of the litter because his spines never really stuck out like they're supposed to, and he doesn't have like a whole bunch of mates like his brother Jiri does, but he made himself useful by being like support for the rest of his family. We also learn he doesn't really have the rage, as they call it among the gruel, he doesn't have the thing he's angry about. He's just kind of cold to everything. And it's not just an emotional rage. It is a literal magical thing. When a gruel enters the state of the rage, their tattoos get all glowy and they become much stronger and they can channel that anger into actual magical prowess. And the manifestation that they indicate in the story makes me wonder why they didn't just name the mechanic for the gruel rage instead of like riot but that's neither here nor there that's me being a melvin or something that, that's what that's called right melvin <laughs> rage is just going super saiyan one note about eris is that unlike a lot of tattoo artists he likes to go to the site of the battle and get a feel of the land before he starts to ink it on people's skin he goes back to his camp after all this and there's some definite tension in the camp his camp is ruled by Rurik Thar, or Rurik and Thar, because it's a two-headed ogre. But the prison break from last week's story has released Dryzek. Dryzek. That was what I thought, too. Dryzek is basically a millennium-old giant who is much wiser than we're initially led to believe. He seems very intimidating and there's a lot of tension in the clan because people are afraid he's going to challenge Rurik Thar. He's also a follower of the old ways, which is the gruel religious belief that Nikia 
promotes. That's the belief in Ilharg, the raised boar. And the Utmonger, yeah. So he, he believes in that, and the raised boar is even mentioned a couple times in the story, which makes sense because it's a big part of their cards in the set. Eris goes over and tries to ink Dryzek because he was deliberately trying to create an ink that would be able to work on the giant to help, like, show off that he can even do giants in their super tough skin. As he's inking him, Dryzek essentially hints that he knows Eris doesn't really feel the rage, that he's seen it a lot in his 800 plus years, and what Eris was doing was not it. Eris had learned since he was young to kind of fake it. But he also tells him that Dryzek himself did not feel the rage until he was, what was it, like a hundred something? Yep. And Eris just doesn't believe it. He's like, what? How can that be right? Like, everyone else is just mad all the time. And while he's pondering this, Dryzek goes over to Rurikthar and everyone gets real tense because they're afraid the challenge is about to happen. And basically, Dryzek shows deference to Rurikthar and makes an offering to him. And, like, all the tension that was amongst the clan, being afraid that he was going to challenge, kind of drains away. So everyone's real happy again. Except in that moment, when everyone's finally relieved, the ink that Eris just inked everyone with, with their new tattoos, all ignite and burn them all. And so he is immediately grabbed by Rurik Thar. And rather than being beaten... Or, you know, any of the the common punishments for this kind of mistake, he is exiled from the clan. So Eris alone tries to make it on his own in the rubble belt, but quickly discovers that most of their land is kind of rotting. It's like the Maka, who he had got the scat from before, was kind of weak and a little bit scrawny and sickly looking. And he starts to discover that everywhere, in the grasses, in the beasts, all over their land. And so he begins to suspect something's wrong, and sneaks back to his camp, only to find he's been replaced already by an ogress named Boss. Boss is, I believe she was the character mentioned way back in the Boro story, right? She's the wife of the guy who caused a scene in Tin Street. Or is her story a separate one? She was arrested in the Gruul Riot that was started by the Golgari Lich Lord. And then she was the prisoner released by the Minotaur Boros Wojak in a trade for information from her Gruul informant. Boz the Ogre was arrested during the riot because she was a Gruul in the vicinity, even though she had nothing to do with it. So Brazer gave up information to help the Wojek in order to trade for her release. She gets released, and now this is some time later, but not super long. And she has become a tattoo artist, or returned to being a tattoo artist. It's not super clear. We know she used to be a warrior with the Gruul, and then became a tattoo artist later. So she's, like, super strong and has a prosthetic tattoo needle attachment on her one arm and she uses that attachment to good effect so it's actually like her inking needle and she uses it for some other things but as she's inking people eris is kind of watching from the shadows and he sees that 
her ink is like bright and vibrant and he wants to learn her secret. So he goes up and tries to trade her and she tells him to get lost. And then he tries to steal it and immediately gets pummeled. But as he gets pummeled by her, the ink kind of flows all over him and the magic in the ink heals him. Now fully healed, he has wasted a whole pot of her ink and she has to go back and get the ingredients for more. So he slinks around and follows her to this hydra cave where she has this clever ploy of using like a goblin skull to mesmerize and then distract a hydra by making it go fetch the goblin skull. She does the peanut butter in a Kong thing. If you don't have a dog, a Kong is a toy. It's like, um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Because I have a dog and I know what you're about to say and it's hilarious and cute. Kongs are, are like little rubber toys. They kind of look like little snowmen, but then they're also hollow. So the idea is when you throw it, they bounce around really irregularly, which is awesome for dogs. If you really want to make a dog go ballistic over them, you can put peanut butter on the inside. So a dog will chase a Kong and then they will have to spend a lot of time licking the peanut butter out. They're also indestructible. Pretty much. So what she does with this Hydra is she kind of like hypnotizes it with this goblin skull and then stuffs a piece of meat inside it and then throws it deeper into the cave. They mentioned goblins for little creatures have like really sturdy skulls. <laughs> so it's like a Kong ball. They're literally like thick skulled and kind of dumb. All the Hydra heads are fighting over the goblin skull, trying to get the meat inside. So she's basically like, you want this skull? You want this skull? Go get it! It's like, yay, I want this skull! Pretty much. And then the Hydra goes flying into the cave, and all the heads start fighting each other over the uh, contents of the skull. And she's digging around for the eggs. But the Hydra gets to the skull and gets into it a little bit faster than they all expected, so... They take off running, and she sees Eris, and then passes him quickly. <laughs> they manage to escape the Hydra, right? I think she casts a spell or something. She uses a spell to make a ramp in the mouth of the cave so that they can run up the ramp and jump out, but the ramp also blocks the entrance so the Hydra can't get out. And then they get to formally meet each other. <laughs> and that's when the whole backstory with, with the Ogress is revealed. But as they kind of journey together a little bit, Eris realizes she intends to show him how to make her ink, believing that it's a waste that he was exiled, because it was not his fault. She's also noticed that the land has kind of gone fallow. She also knows who he is, and knows that he's a pretty talented artist in his own right. As they're journeying, they get approached by these, what do they call them, battle boars? That sounds like a new type of this little, like, you know, this little toys that kids get that they, like, throw at each other. That's what that sounds like. Battle boars, collect all ten. It does sound exactly like one of those cheap collectible things that have pop up every couple of years. Eris immediately tries to run, but Boz grabs him and tells him, like, look, our only chance is to make him think we're going to try and fight. Try and look as intimidating as you can. Eris is so scrawny and pathetic. He's not in the state of mind where he, he thinks very highly of himself. But they manage to pull it off, and he stands his ground, and the lead boar inspects them and walks past and then continues on their way. Boss also teaches them some fighting moves, but as they're exploring, they discover 
there are these thick, healthy trees, and they're all evenly spaced, and they try and gather some components from it, and Eris is shocked to learn that as they chop at one of the trees, they're shocked to discover the trees are only five years old, and they quickly realize what must have happened is within the last few years, the Selesnians planted this new growth forest and drained the power from the Gore clan's territory in order to fuel the growth of their territory. And the way it was done, like, he climbs up this, the tree to notice this. The Selesnian forest doesn't look like a forest anymore. It looks like a wall against the Gruul rubble belt. All of the land that's approaching the Selesnian area looks very desiccated and fallow and just not healthy at all. So that's when he feels a little bit angry. So then he goes back to the clan. So he tried to get his brother Jiri to understand what's going on, but he doesn't really get his brother to understand what, what's, what exactly is happening. And brother tried to, like, effectively pushes him away, and the clan starts waking up. And that's when he starts to challenge Rurkthar. He challenges Rurkthar to be chieftain. A challenge for the position of chieftain is what he says. Everybody in the in the, the gathering starts laughing at him because he's like, this guy is not physically imposing at all. So Rurkthar basically just boops him on the head and he falls over. He gets back up and challenges Rurkthar again. Basically, something to the same effect happens again. He gets put in his place really quickly and then he gets up again and challenges again. And he tries to use one of the moves that Boz taught him. And then he thought he had some kind of ground going, but then he realized, no, that was just Rurkathar cracking his knuckles. And then that's when it happens where his rage manifests physically, and he exhibits this, this sort of rage, and Jiri starts to stand with him, and then Dryzek says he stands with him, and then he says again, I challenge you. But instead of saying, I challenge you for the position, he says, I challenge you, Chieftain, to do something about this. You know, he's basically explaining that we fought for you, you've got to fight for us. And from there, Rurkthar's like, yeah, I'll fight for this, and if the Lesnian wants a war, we'll give them a war, and they, they charge off to fight. And, um, like, the big source of Aris's rage wasn't necessarily that the Selesnians were encroaching on their land. It's that the stories of his people, the Vyashino, were not told in Gruul circles. So Dryzak, as a giant, got to be this big famous warrior because he did big famous deeds and did all kinds of destruction. And Rurikthar got to be a clan leader of the Gore clan because they're so mighty and powerful. And Boz got to be a big-time warrior who then became a famous artist because she's a menacing ogre. But there aren't any, like, famous Vyashino stories because they're small and sneaky and not very muscular and he was like how come there's no stories of my people well damn it if we're gonna stop the Selesnia it's gonna be because of me and we're gonna finally have a friggin story for friggin Vyashino so let's get mad about it and that's when he goes super saiyan and like literally catches on fire so I'm, I'm going to read the actual quote because it's real good. So good. You found your rage, Dryzik says, looking down at me with a smile. Now use it. Use it, 
Isn't that what I've been trying to do? I focus on what I'm mad about, ignoring the bonfire embers drifting over my skin. I'm mad at the Slesnian Conclave, sure. I'm mad our lands are being drained of magic, paved over by civilization, poisoned by industrialization. But what I'm mostly mad about has been sitting with me for a very long time, before any of those things ever mattered to me. I'm mad that my people's stories have been lost, that my heroes have been hidden from me. I'm mad that not once as a young Vyashino had I sat down before a bonfire to hear stories of warriors with green scales and lashing tails, people like me smashing civility with reckless abandon. And that quote is just really emblematic of what's been happening with these stories in terms of telling a real-life experience. Representation matters. Nikki's stories have done a very good job of using the fantasy setting of Ravnica to tell these very real stories, and like every time there's a good one. Every single time. Not going to lie, I missed that part of the story. I missed that line. The part that I actually really liked in the story was, um, you know, throughout how he feels like his rage is missing and he has to fake it. I find that to be a very real and relatable feeling. Especially uh, thinking he's the only one who has ever felt like that. Right? Isn't that a, just another very real statement? When it turns out even his hero felt like that, he's like, what? You know, everybody goes through insecurity? Crazy. Nikki has just done a great job of making everyone feel... Like, all of her characters, even the housewives that don't really see their husbands enough, but he will still manage to go see them in, the, in jail when they get arrested for doing something awful. Like, she's made every one of the characters seem very real. They make them feel like people that we would identify with in some way, shape, or form. Even if they are huge bull people or lizard people, it's very nice and refreshing. These are stories that would have been very hard for us to get if they had been focused on characters like the Gatewatch. So I'm very glad we got these side stories. I think people have been back and forth on whether or not they wanted something unrelated to the main plot for these two sets, but they have been so well put together in terms of the characters intermingling between each story you know little impacts of each one referencing like two other stories frequently and then the very real feeling of taking the exaggerated premise of the guilds of ravnica and relating it to both real life problems and humanizing these very fantasy characters it's been really great, really grounded. I've also liked that the stories are uh, not necessarily about the people you'd expect them to be about. Like, you think of this story was not about a warrior, but an artist. That's another good one. Every time, the bad Demir agent, you know, the gruel artist. I don't necessarily know that that is, like, ideal for me. But I think overall it is an interesting and cool choice. Even if, like, I don't know, maybe I kind of did want to have a story about a gruel warrior. But that doesn't mean that it's not also fun to shake it up a little. I do want to point out here that this is one of the first times where we've really seen that the Selesnya as a whole doing something that comes off a little darker 
then it's really made to seem in any of the other stories given for the plane. Of course, we had the infiltration of the Silesnia of the Quiet Men by the Demir, infesting them with loopholes and stuff back in the original novels, but that wasn't really a true Silesnian thing. That was more the Demir infiltrating. This is a clear overreach of Silesnian magic into group areas where this is something that wars would be fought over. Like, you're essentially poisoning one an enemy or not even an enemy like another country's land and source of food and stuff like that to strengthen your borders it's a very hostile action even if it is defensive in nature just because of they didn't drain the land on their side of this wall of forth they drained the gruel areas to power this source of magic i had mentioned before that in the past there's been a sort of inequality between how the guilds are portrayed as basically good or evil. Some of the guilds, namely Demir, Rakdos, and Gruul, and um, to a slightly lesser but still significant degree, Orzhov, portrayed as kind of like they're the bad guilds, and then there's like the good guilds, like Selesnia. So it is good to see that turned on its head because, ooh, I've never liked Selesnia. Those guys, I do not like them. Well then. Because, I mean, gruel all the way, honestly. I'll just pretend that um, I didn't hear that. You gotta be wild and free. You gotta take off your clothes, go feral, run into the woods. That's how you live. I did love the overlap between gruel and Izzet in that they both like watching Izzet things explode. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a nice line. Overall, I think Nikki's done a really great job of showing both good and bad people in each guild. Even even in last week's story with the Rakdos, where the Azorius were predominantly the villains, she also included the ex-Azorius precog who did help our heroes, or uh, I, I guess anti-heroes, throughout the story. I'm interested to see the Azorius story to see how Nikki portrays that protagonist and kind of how everything overlaps with the rest of the stories being told, because we've seen pretty much every facet of every guild, mostly, but we're not done yet, so we, we haven't gotten all the way there. So, so I'm very excited for all ten of these stories to be finished up so we can finally get this kind of complete image. And related to that, we have so much overlap between all these stories. Little events and characters carry through each of them. So... I just finished another playthrough of The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And these stories kind of feel like that game. We're in one city, and there's a certain group of people that all the stories are going to follow. But depending on which story you're in, you will only see certain parts of the other stories. And that's kind of the way all the NPCs interact and cross paths in Majora's Mask. So I'm interested when all these stories are done in charting out all the characters and all the plot points to see if I can't put together kind of like a single document of what happened in these stories, both chronologically and in terms of character and theme and stuff. Because I think that's what we're kind of building towards. Not anything in like a super meaningful way, but just as a 
it's it's just a facet that's made i think all of them a lot more interesting to read yeah i agree and i think especially that different point of view between all of them has been really interesting where the minotaur from the boro story was like racked with guilt over releasing what turned out to be a pretty nice ogress you know <laughs> who got caught up in again very real to life she was existing while gruel near where a crime had happened and got rounded up like i i can't think of anything more real than that and the crime ended up being instigated by a Golgari lich lord who was trying to frame Vraska for it in order to seize power in the guild. There's so much interconnected crime and justice and just daily life, and it's really interesting to me how it's all come together so far. Before we leave this story, I do have not my final thought, but it's a final thought on this story. We got to see gruel tattoo artists doing their thing and if we remember back to jace's origin story or maybe it was one of the stories shortly after where we got a little bit of his backstory we know that his tattoos were done by a gruel artist as well when he was 15 and first arrived to ravnica and maybe it was in ixalan when he had that memory so here is my question is jace's face covered in maca poop. <laughs> okay, no, listen. No, because it's blue, and this was green. Well, Jace's tattoos are white, but I don't, I don't know what kind of tattoos he got. But they're not green is the point. The thought of his face being literally tattooed with poop is very funny to me. And was it fresh or was it old? Because you know how poop can kind of change color over time. If it's white, maybe it's made from, like, rock poop or something. I don't know. Both Eris and Boz seem to agree that poop is an essential element in their ink. Like, we, we need canon answers. I'm perfectly fine with this, that Jace's tattoos may or may not be made out of maca poop. <laughs> and so that way, when someone calls him a poop face in the future, it won't actually be inaccurate. That's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> oh god, this is not where I get this episode to go. Let's move on to final thoughts. So, my final thought for the day is I just wanted to note that the week of Valentine's Day, there is not going to be a new magic story. So, our anniversary episode will probably still be the same day, but it'll be mixed in with us talking about the 5th, Ravnica Allegiance story and the 10 stories overall. I'm thinking we might record a separate anniversary episode, but keep it on the shorter side, like under 30 minutes. Do like a 20 to 30 minute. And, uh, you know, one, first anniversary, do a dumb thing we did early in the podcast and release two episodes in a week. <laughs> we were talking about that in our private chat. I'm like, it'll be very nostalgic to record two freaking episodes in a week and try and edit that and get it out. Have fun, Lorelai. I can do it. It'll be fine. So, Lorelai, final thoughts? I don't I don't know. How do you get better final thoughts than uh, face poop? I, I recently started getting back into Arena. I have been very bad at playing it since it's moved to open beta, because I've, I've been pretty salty about the account wipe. I enjoyed my Merfolk deck, but uh, I'm building back up to a Merfolk deck for standard. Today, I was like, crap, I gotta start, like, actually, like, just 
grinding some free play and like completing quests and like, ah, I got to use precon decks and it's kind of miserable. And then I realized, oh yeah, I had done a couple sealed events from Ravnica Allegiance. And what did I open again? Oh, right. Uh, a Ravager Worm and two Domeries. So I have made a critical error earlier and played with precons when I could have played with the still very beginner-ish-y, but much more enjoyable, gruel, mid-rangey, beatdown thing that I cobbled together with random cards I had opened. And Domery's pretty good. He's pretty fun. That's a powerful card. Galta with Riot. Busted. Very enjoyable. I, I have killed many people while they were at 20 life in one attack. Oh yeah, I can't wait to give uh, Zakama Riot. Brian? My final thought is also on the arena scale. I was very sad last night because I stayed up till close to midnight trying to get to platinum. <laughs> it was just poor decisions all around. I got to gold one at around 10 o'clock. I was like, it, it, it shouldn't take me very long to get to platinum. I just need to get, what, six games? It'll be fine. And after starting the night at 10 and 3, I promptly lost six matches in a row where I got mana screwed or mana flooded. All six games, it was, it was kind of disappointing. The standard looks really nice, and um, I'm having fun. And I did most of that damage with my win streak as the gate stack, and the gate stack is super fun. Annie, do you want to say anything for final thoughts? Want to say anything? Want to play? Oh, she said yes. <laughs> you don't want to say anything, Annie? Want to go outside? Want to go outside? Do you want to go outside, Annie? <coughs> okay. <laughs> That's my final thought. <coughs> oh, no, you gotta stop, though. <laughs> <laughs> the first two are cute. The third and fourth are just good. I gotta go wrangle her. <laughs> if you love Annie as much as Annie loves Annie, and you should because she's the president and CEO of the Vorthos cast, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Vorthos cast and help support our show. This entire program runs on your donations, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of all our wonderful patrons. So we've got a new tier that we came out with a couple weeks ago, a live listen tier, so that when we start recording episodes on Thursday nights around 7 or 7.30 Eastern Time, you can hop in voice chat, get muted, because you don't get to be on the show, you just get to listen, but you can listen and you get to hear all kinds of background stuff. We do some pre-show chatting and you get to hear episodes a couple days earlier than they get released. So it's a cool perk. So if that's something that interests you, you can head over to Patreon and join today. And also, if you are one of our patrons and you're in our Discord server and you're interested in D &D, and you're listening to this on Monday tonight, you can tune in to our uh, D&D campaign that we're doing. If you like today's story, then... Well, if you've liked any of the Ravnica stories, then you'll like it, because uh, we're doing our Ravnica campaign. One of the NPCs they've adopted is an ogress, so I feel like I called that. Yeah, it's great. I'm participating in it. I have never D&D'd before, but it's pretty fun. Except uh, last session, uh, so my character is a Demir rogue who's a mailman. And last session, I bungled 
sneaking up behind someone, tackling someone, picking a lock, and lying to a shopkeeper. And those are all things I should be proficient in, that I am proficient in, and I rolled horribly. I'm basically the Inspector Clouseau of this campaign. It's really fantastic. But that wasn't the worst bungle of the night. The worst bungle of the night was triggering a trap to cast sleep on everybody, but everybody uh, escaped, and you never knew. That's the one role I didn't screw up. You know, because your dice failed you, the D&D tradition is to throw it in the trash or buy a new pair so that the old, the old set realizes what it's done and rolls better for you. I'm not superstitious. That thing is not real. No, what you gotta do is uh, you gotta chill your dice. That's also not real. Still not superstitious. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to a D&D game where like at least one person didn't have like 15 sets of dice. I feel so attacked right now. Like, oh, nope, this one sucks. Pulling another one. Yep, I bet it was Brian. I, I knew it. Well, I mean, realistically, I don't have that many dice. My girlfriend, on the other hand, has so many dice. So many. And we're about to get a bunch more. It's kind of... Like, I have my one good set of dice, and she got me another set of dice that are pretty good for Christmas. And I have a bunch of dice that I've never used, but uh, I have my one tried-and-true set. I actually just ordered some more because they looked pretty, but, you know, I don't plan on using them that much, but we'll see. And remember, listeners, the spin-down life counters are not d20s. That is correct. They are not weighted properly. Nor are the numbers randomized. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.